Hello, welcome to a Truth Legal podcast. My name's Andrew Gray. I'm the owner of Truth Legal Solicitors here in Harrogate. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Peter Campbell. Peter is a consultant orthopaedic surgeon based in York, and he sees private and NHS patients. He also does some life coaching, and I've interviewed Peter for a, another podcast. If you have a look at the Harrogate podcast, you'll see all about it. But today on the Truth Legal podcast, my questions are going to be all about personal injury and clinical negligence. Peter, so thank you very much for being interviewed by me for the second time. How are you? I'm very well, Andrew. Thank you very much for the invitation. Pleasure to be back. Great. Now, one of the blogs that I've written, which is, has the most traction online, is about what to expect when someone who's been injured in an accident, who then brings a claim, has to go and see a consultant orthopaedic surgeon. Most people are most daunted by going to see a doctor anyway, but to see a doctor in a legal context is doubly concerning for people. Just explain to my listeners who perhaps going through this process what it's like for you seeing them in this context. You're absolutely right, uh, Andrew, that I think uh, as clinicians, as consultants, we recognise that for uh, patients who are seeing us in this context of medical legal, it is a really daunting and often um, an occasion that they don't know what to expect. So helping them to understand that, to allay some of their fears is is really important. Um, Our role as a specialist when we see somebody who's had a personal injury claim is very much around supporting the legal process. Uh, Our role is to be an expert for the court. Um, And with that in mind, what uh, your clients will experience will be a fairly comprehensive discussion around the circumstances of the accident, um, what the impact was of them, both in the short term and long term, and also a little bit of a conversation around the past medical history uh, and any issues they may have had um, prior to the accident in question. The, the consultant is, is not there to treat your client. Um, it's not a medical consultation in that sense. But often the specialist will, if appropriate, recommend to the court various treatment options if they feel that that might be appropriate given the condition that the client may be in uh, at that time. So it's often uh, a uh, fact-finding opportunity uh, for the specialist and it's very much about hearing and listening to your client's story about the circumstances of the injury and the accident and the impact that it's had on their lifestyle. I think your job is super difficult. Not the diagnosis part and the reading of the medical records and the asking of the questions. I think that's fairly easy. Predicting the future for that person, the prognosis, which is really where the value usually Mm -hmm. is in a personal injury claim, is, I think, an almost impossible task for any medical legal expert in any field. How do you go about working out what the future would have been with that diagnosis, what the prognosis will be. You're right. Predicting the future is uh, is fraught with uh, inconsistencies and none of us can predict with any degree of robust certainty. Um, what we can do is make uh, an estimate on the balance of probabilities um, and to assist us with that, we look at the type of injury that the client may have had, uh, whether there was any structural damage as a consequence of that injury, what the rate of recovery has been like, but also what the health was like before the accident. 
because the, the reality is that all of us over time are getting older uh, and all of us may develop conditions that are part of that normal aging process. And we need to be able to tease out the impact of the accident or injury uh, on that natural process uh, so that we can provide some clarity between the two. And that's not always an exact science and there will obviously at times be a, uh, a spectrum of opinion as to that impact and all we can do is base that on the best evidence we have on our own and our personal clinical experience. Now I have the pleasure of training medical legal experts and I always make this point to them is that even if they are paid for by the claimant solicitor's side or the defendant solicitor's side, their job, as you've already alluded to, is to the court. And the test for them when answering any questions is, would they give this answer if the other side was paying them? Because frankly, as medical legal experts, you come under intense pressure from the solicitors and barristers to not change your opinion in a negative way, but to, to mould it to, I'm struggling to describe how we ask you to sort of change your reports in a better way for our clients, but that's what we have to do. We, it's a difficult tightrope for us as solicitors asking you those questions, but it, it must be hard for you when you know who's paying you. Help me yeah. out here, please. Yeah, no, you're, 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 you're right. And, and we've, we, as experts, understand that dilemma. It is the system that we're in, in terms of the legal system. It is a bit adversarial, and, um, and you and I would probably both have, different, uh, have a similar view as to whether that's beneficial or not, and often the adversarial process that we have can seem to be a bit clunky and to get in the way sometimes of good outcomes. But we are mindful that whilst we are paid by either the claimant or the defendant, our role is to be an impartial advocate for the court. Um, and we need to be clear that any conclusions that we draw um, are based on sound evidence and are based on uh, our, um, our, the truth as we see it and, and based on our experience, irrespective of, of, of who is actually funded and uh, given us our instructions. And I think that's also an important issue for the clients to recognise that just because they're coming to see us at the behest of their own solicitors or indeed at the behest of the other side solicitors, we are there to take a factual account of the circumstances and provide an opinion to the court that can help the court decide which of the uh, routes that they may want to, to go down. Now, a question which comes up an awful lot in my office is when we have clients who before an accident had no symptoms at all and then they've had an accident and then they have plenty of symptoms in whatever part of the body where their injury took place. But then the medical expert, someone like you, would often say, well, this person had degeneration. They were going to be like this anyway in so-and-so period of time. My understanding is that's what's called asymptomatic, whatever it mm -hmm. would be. Mm -hmm. How do you go about explaining that to someone that they were perfectly healthy before an accident and actually their injury would have manifested itself in three years' time, two years' time? Where's the science behind that? Well, I think what we try and explain to patients uh, and your clients through that process, and part of this is educating uh, your good selves as a solicitor as well, of course, is that um, symptoms develop in people in the general population 
not just because they've had accidents. So back pain is, uh, is a common example that uh, many people in society will develop back pain uh, and not have had a significant injury or accident. Uh, so, so back pain is common within the general population. If somebody develops back pain as a consequence of their injury, then depending upon their age and in the results of investigations, we may well be able to say that on the balance of probabilities, they would have, are likely to have developed some symptoms over the fullness of time, even if the accident hadn't have occurred. And what the accident has done, therefore, is accelerated or brought forward those symptoms earlier than they would have occurred. Now, that may not be the same if somebody has sustained a broken ankle, because, for example, most people would recognise that very few people spontaneously break an ankle over the course of their lifetime. So if somebody has a broken ankle, then the chances are that happened because of the accident and not because it just happened because they uh, were the age that they were. So it does very much depend upon the injuries sustained, um, as well as the various contexts of the patient in terms of their age and lifestyle. Thank you. Now we've dealt with personal injury pretty well. There's also the branch of law, clinical negligence. Now clinical negligence, essentially, my clients are bringing claims against people like you, I suppose, um, for you know, given poor treatment and therefore poor outcome and so on and so forth. What's your job as a medical legal expert in a clinical negligence setting? Could you explain that to my clients? Because it's a little bit different. Yes, you're right. And I think that clearly the circumstances are different. Um, often um, in, in these situations, um, obviously the uh, client is bringing a claim against an individual uh, doctor or against an organisation, a hospital, for example. Um, obviously, we need to be sure that, that does, there's no conflict of interest. So I wouldn't be somebody, seeing somebody for clinical negligence as an expert if they were bringing a claim against my hospital or, or a close colleague. That would be a clear conflict. Uh, in some ways, the roles are, are similar in that um, I'm there to provide evidence for the court in an impartial way. Um, but my level of expertise often is around uh, not just the, uh, the incident and, and the potential impact on the client, but also the care that they have received. And whether, from my experience, that would be consistent with a standard of care that the vast majority of my colleagues would have provided, or whether that standard of care has fallen below that level. And then the other question that's often asked is then, well, what was the consequence of that? Um, did that failure of care lead to the symptoms that the uh, client is experiencing? So there's those two elements, really. Standard of care uh, and then what was the impact of that standard of care related to the symptoms that the client was experiencing. Um, and we try and tease out both of those, both through the consultation with the client, but also review of all the available medical records. That's a very good answer to that question. It is, and should be, difficult to sue a doctor. You've already mentioned that to bring a successful claim in a clinical negligence way, the standard of care must be pretty atrocious, not just a little bit poor, it must be something that pretty much no other doctor would have done. And it, I think, protects doctors in a public policy way so that there aren't hundreds of thousands of claims against medics. I think last year there's only 17,400 claims brought, which 
if you take the number of interactions with the NHS last year, for there only to be 17,400 clinical negligence claims, I think that's quite a small number, in fact. And I think it was declining rather than increasing. Still staying with the clinical negligence arena, as a consultant orthopaedic surgeon, are there any obvious places where your colleagues often make errors? So a couple of things I think um, I would point out, Andrew, I think it's quite interesting in your previous comment. I, I agree that the, the incidence of medical negligence against doctors is very low when you look at all of the interactions. I would take that as a sign that, by and large, the vast majority of doctors are doing a good job I'd and agree. patients are really agree. happy. I, I would hope that a standard of care would not have to be atrocious or well below the bar for that to be recognised and for patients to be inclined to be recompensed for that. Um, I think that w- it is our duty as consultants, as specialists, as doctors, to maintain that standard to be as high as possible and for us to be vocal when we, as hard as it may be, to be vocal when we see departures from that standard of care that may have an impact on patients. So I would not want to see a situation where we have to wait for standards of care to be atrocious before they are highlighted. Um, And going back to your question in terms of um, clinical uh, negligence um, and sort of where are those particular errors, if you like, I think for me the key thing is around communication. Uh, In my experience, most patients uh, are unhappy because they don't feel as though either they've been listened to or they haven't had a clear explanation about what has happened. Um, and regrettably, risk is a part of life. Uh, risk is a part of crossing the road, taking a plane on a holiday, driving down the street. Um, all of our normal everyday activities carry an element of risk and medical intervention carries as much risk, if not more, than any other activity we get involved in. So understanding the risks of a, of a procedure, of an intervention um, from a specialist, as well as understanding the rewards is very, very important. So patients are entering into that intervention with their eyes wide open. And there is a difference, a huge difference between a, a patient unfortunately experiencing a complication despite everyone's best efforts and a patient experiencing care which has been substandard. And we need to differentiate between the two. And one of our roles as an expert is to try and differentiate between where a patient has undergone a less than satisfactory outcome through a complication that occurred through no fault, as opposed to an unsatisfactory outcome that occurred through some error of judgment or some um, poor element of care. So I think for me, communication and fully informed consent are probably the two key areas that I try and instill in my trainees and in the doctors that I've trained that are pivotal to maintaining a good, honest and open uh, patient-doctor relationship. Thank you. In my experience of clinical agents' clients, obviously they, they don't want to be in the position that they're in. They really don't want to bring claims. Some people perhaps have find it easier to bring a whiplash claim in a personal injury setting, sure, and you're suing an insurer of someone that you don't really know, usually. In a clinical negligence way, it's their doctor who they have trusted. Their hospital, perhaps their local hospital, where it's staffed by some of their friends. It's not something that people enter into lightly at all. 
And as you say, if there has been negligence, there has been a poor outcome, often the medic's bedside manner, their communication, their honesty with their patient, I think reduces claims coming. It's when you know, the doctors maybe club together and there is no honest feedback to the client, where the client looks around for answers, makes those complaints and starts calling solicitors. So you're absolutely right. And I'm glad you train your doctors to be that way, to just be open, to have their duty of candour, which I think should have always existed with NHS. It shouldn't be a new concept. I think it will reduce claims and add for make happier patients. And that's what we all want in the long term. It is. Absolutely. Peter, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Andrew.